Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Hey everyone, stick around to the end of this podcast to hear the trailer from Kuva to Qatar, remaking the U.S. men's national team, a narrative podcast from The Athletic. Sam Stayskull and Paul Tenorio spoke with head coach Greg Berhalter, star players Weston McKinney and Tyler Adams, and U.S. soccer legend Clint Dempsey, among many others, to bring you the first-hand story of the men's national team's long road from not qualifying for the 2018 World Cup to sending a talented young squad to this year's tournament, you'll be able to get every episode on the Athletic Soccer Show feed on November 1st, so be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Saturday Slammin' Jam, hosted by Andrew Schlicht with Alex Spears. How about we can just watch basketball? That's a man's jam! I like that idea. Live from Oklahoma. Click, click. With questions and participants from all around the world. That out of posters! Whether you're flipping your flapjacks, tending to your yard, or just sipping your coffee, get ready, sit back, relax. It's the Saturday Slammin' Jam. Back is, I missed this shot, I walk away, I'm still a chump. Here's Andrew. Welcome to the Saturday Slam and Jam. I'm your host, Andrew Schlecht. Go to theathletic.com slash NBA show and get The Athletic for $1 a month for six months. It's not a better time to do it than right now because the NBA is fully back. We have seen every single team play. It's been a great experience so far. I've got my co-host, Alex Spears, with me. Alex, what's up? Andrew, for the 76th season in a row. They have decided to let us watch NBA basketball again. <laughs> what a joy. Uh, unless, of course, you're using the new NBA app, huh? Oh, that, that uh, the season started, Andrew, on Tuesday night with a marquee matchup between the New Look 76ers, a popular championship pick in the preseason, and last year's runner-up, the Boston Celtics. Now, James Harden appears to be back, and Tuesday night, we got the full Harden experience. 35 points, endless free throws, miserable defense, step-back threes, the rare shimmy-into-airball sequence, brilliant passing. <laughs> it was all there. What wasn't there was a win, because the Celtics behind Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown's 70 combined points beat the Sixers 126-117. to Wednesday night was the first full night of games, and we were treated to an overwhelming amount of basketball. Zion and the Pelicans shellacked the Brooklyn Nets in Ben Simmons' first game in 470 days. The Utah Jazz, who are seemingly interested in Victor Wembanyama, in theory, based on their offseason moves, started off their season with a bang, beating back-to-back MVP Nikola Jokic and the Denver Nuggets 123-102. The Suns, at risk of a consecutive embarrassing defeat to the Mavericks at home, fought back from a 22-point deficit to shock the Mavs and me at the buzzer when who else but Damian Lee hit a game-winning fadeaway in the final seconds. The New Look Knicks pushed the Memphis Grizzlies to overtime, but ultimately could not defeat the permanent highlight that is John Morant, who scored 34 points in the win. That's only four of the Wednesday games, and there's at least four more worth mentioning, Andrew. It's too much. 
I'm overwhelmed. So we move on to Thursday, where it was the Battle of Los Angeles. The Clippers, with Paul George and Kawhi Leonard, back healthy, sort of. And the Lakers, who are on a crusade to ruin nationally televised basketball for the second season in a row. The Lakers bounce back from their opener against the Warriors to make this one interesting, but the Clippers close the deal at the end, winning 103-97. The Lakers are currently shooting 19 of 85 from the three-point line through two games, which works out to 22.4%. Now, that sounds bad, but it's actually eight percentage points higher than their chances of making the playoffs, according to 538's model, which has the Lakers at 14%. Oh, no. Uh, Now, Rob Palinka is reportedly going to wait until after Thanksgiving to make a move because when you don't bother fixing a clearly broken roster over an extended offseason, what's another month, Andrew? What a week it was. (laughs) Oh, holy smokes. We're just like one game in for some teams, two games in, and it's already just just fantastic. Uh, We wanted to highlight a few things uh, that we've seen. Now, there's not a ton to take away from this week, but I feel like, like maybe, but maybe there is. Maybe there are well, some things to take away. You know, it's like we spend all off season. We stare at these rosters. We map out how we think the season's going to play out. Yep. And then within 48 minutes, something happens that we didn't expect, that we yeah. were not factoring into our preseason expectations for a given team. I know. So it might be, it, it, it doesn't even necessarily need to be a negative thing or a positive thing. It could be a neutral thing. Yeah. It's something that we like are surprised by or intrigued by. Yeah. I mean, here's one thing I did not anticipate talking about today. The Chicago Bulls. Mm. The the Bulls were a pick for many to be a team that, to take a step back, right? Now, it's only been one game, but I was super impressed with the way that they played on the road in Miami. Now, the, the big story heading into the game was Zach Levine was sitting due to left knee management. It's just a weird situation to me, mostly because there was really no indication that this was coming. I don't think anybody anticipated him to sit on opening night. Here's a quote from Zach during camp. Not having any aches and pains and being able to play without any limitations in my own mind is huge. Like, okay, I can't go lift or I might not be able to to dunk on this play is something I thought about last year. you're not supposed to be thinking that way when you're playing basketball. And I was dealing with that a lot last year. I'm just happy to feel better. So he says that, huh. and then he's sitting out with left knee management. He's going to sit again tonight. We're recording this on Friday uh, against the Wizards. But he is supposed to play in the home opener. So hopefully all goes well, and he's able to uh, feel better, like he said he was. Um, so he is listed as out. But let's put all that aside. Because the Bulls beat the Heat in Miami, and it was a really fun night. Their their two stars in DeMar DeRozan and Nick Vucevic were amazing. Uh, DeRozan's shot making was incredible. He was 37-6-9. He nearly outscored Jimmy Butler, Bam Adebayo, and Kyle Lowry all on his own. And then you had Vooch, who had 15 points, 17 boards. He had five offensive rebounds, which were pretty crucial down the stretch of the game. That really helped propel the Bulls. I also love what Billy Donovan did with his rotations with this team. We saw this a lot in Oklahoma City, but he used a three-guard lineup to close the game that included Ayodesunmu, Alex Caruso, and Goran Dragic. 
And they were super pesky. They caused some turnovers. They had some good shot making. They could all get downhill a little bit. And that was great. Uh, The guy who really kind of was the star of that trio was Io, but someone I did not think I would be talking about at all on this show is Goran Dragic. Goran Dragic came in and kind of changed the game for the Bulls. And he brought like a sense of calmness, a sense of leadership. He was really good. He brought a steadiness that the Bulls kind of needed. And then, man, I would assume he's... He's probably not the guy whenever you think of like young Chicago Bulls players. He's not really like high on the list, but I think he should be the number one guy that we think about. A lot of people, it's Patrick Williams, one, because he was a high lottery pick. I was just a lot better than him today. He had 17, six and four. He brought a different dynamic to the team and he was super poised down the stretch. I don't know if you saw this clip, but... The Bulls' lead was up to six, as many as 16, but it had been whittled down to six. And there was a technical foul called on the Bulls, and Andre Drummond's kind of losing his mind a little bit. And Io goes over to him and is like trying to calm Andre Drummond down and trying to calm the team down. Hmm. Like, like stay, like stay with me. Like, let's keep engaged. Like, don't do this. So we're going to, and he kind of helped propel this team in the midst of, I mean, there were many, many Bulls collapses last year. And I think like a lot of people that watch this Bulls team were just kind of ready for the collapse to come completely and for Miami to kind of take over. But Io was a huge part in them not folding. And I thought that was super impressive. Uh, They also just took care of the ball. They had 14 turnovers to Miami's 19. Io only had two turnovers in his 36 minutes. And then just his ability to get downhill was something that you can see that he's worked on. He's got great size for a point guard. And he can also get downhill. And so if they do get Lonzo Ball back, they do get Zach Levine back, man, this is a this could be a real team Whoa, if they get Andrew. into the right spot. One game. I'm telling you, I like what I saw. I think Billy, Don- Billy Donovan is an underrated coach in this league, and they've got pieces. I mean, they're missing their backcourt in Lonzo and Zach Levine. And you watch that game, you wouldn't have known. They played with a ton of poise. We forget how big of a deal Alex Caruso was to them. When they lost him and him getting big minutes, like this is this is a good team, and we have we have co- contract year Vooch, I think is going to be a real thing. Contract year Vooch, okay. So you think the you would be ready to say after game one, the yeah. Bulls are back. The Bulls, the are Bulls back. are back, baby. Hey, shouts to Trey Kirby. I I was impressed. I was super impressed with the depth that they have. If they can get fully healthy. They have some serious depth at the guard position. And if they can get a good year out of Mick Vucevic, and I know that trade has been maligned, and I I will malign it myself. It was a bad deal, like straight up a terrible trade. But it doesn't mean that like Vuce is absolutely cooked. Like he could still have a good year. Wow. Well, uh, for my first observation, I'm keeping it local with my hometown Portland Trailblazers. Ooh. Uh, by the way, did you know that we have uh, the second worst air quality in the world right now? Is that true? Yeah, we've <laughs> oh been climbing gosh. up the rankings this past week. <laughs> no. Why? We haven't been able to get above Seattle, but yeah. we're holding strong at number two. Uh, it's actually going to rain today, so we're better. But okay, okay in the preseason, Andrew, national buzz about the Blazers, uh, non-existent, pr- pretty low. You know, everyone yeah. seems to like Dame, but no one seemed quite sure what to do with this team. 
In fact, negativity might be the word that you would use. I did see some negativity. I did see some negativity, yes. Uh, It was fitting then that their first game was against one of the preseason media darlings, ourselves included, the Sacramento Kings. Yeah. Now, uh, going into the season, I was feeling fine about the Blazers, except for one thing, and that was the center position. Because Yusuf Nurkic, uh, he hadn't looked especially spry in Mm preseason games, which was concerning because the Blazers' center rotation behind him uh, is Drew Eubanks and then a two-way player, Olivier Saar. Which is why, despite Nurkic continuing to look a little sluggish in the first game against the Kings, I was excited because the Blazers had this willingness to embrace small ball. And it wasn't like they spent a significant amount of time playing small ball in this game. Looking at lineup data on NBA.com, the Blazers only had about seven minutes on the court without one of Nurkic or Eubanks. What was significant, however was that six of those seven small ball minutes were the final six minutes of the game. Down by one with six minutes left, Chauncey Billups subbed Nurkic off, leaving on a lineup of Dame, Anthony Simons, Josh Hart, Jeremy Grant, and Justice Winslow. And that group Mm -hmm. proceeded to outscore Sacramento 18-10 to in the final six minutes, giving the Blazers a 115-108 victory. Now, this all interested me for a couple reasons. First... It gave me a glimpse into how the Blazers might be able to manage what is otherwise an underwhelming center rotation. It gave me hope that they have more flexibility than I might have thought in the preseason. More importantly, that they're willing to use that flexibility. Second, this is one of the first times that I've actually had a real thought about Chauncey Billups as a head coach. Because (laughs) in his first season of coaching last year, like, how would you develop any type of uh, opinion like yeah. other beyond the fact that once they turned on the tanking jets, they were very good at it. Great tanker. Great yeah. tanker. Coming from a, a fan base with some experience in that area, they were very talented tankers. But that decision to stick with Winslow and sub off Nurkic for the stretch run of a one point game, I thought that was really impressive. And the other aspect of that game that honestly kind of blew my mind was Shaden Sharp getting 16 minutes in yeah, game man. one. Because. Yeah. If you think back, we went from all the rumors about Portland trading that pick around draft time. Portland does a 180, not just uses, they don't just use the pick, but they use it on the top prospect with arguably the most questions about him, to now watching that prospect play real minutes in game one of the season and looking really good too as an off ball scorer around Damon Simons. So, yeah, it's been one game, but I am officially intrigued by the Blazers. And looking ahead, Andrew, they've got a game Sunday night that I'm very interested in. The Blazers Mm. on the road at the Los Angeles Lakers. Two teams that were thrown into the playing pool during preseason Mm -hmm. along with the Kings. The Lakers, in comparison, a tough opening couple games, we we have to admit. Sure. But they're also a really big lineup. So how committed are the Blazers to regularly using small ball lineups? Is this going to be just a flash in the pan, or is this something that they're actually going to be bringing out game after game after game? I'm intrigued, Mm -hmm. Andrew. And Mm -hmm. it's just something that uh, I don't know if I should have been expecting it, but I wasn't expecting it. And the fact that they were so willing to make that decision at such a crucial point in the game and be confident in it, that gets me excited about the rest of the Blazers' season. Yeah. Go check out Jason Quick's article about game one and about... Their win in Sacramento 
he talks about that how that small ball lineup was like initially thought up. It was over a, a bottle of wine in California during the preseason. Ooh. So go check that out. Jason Quick is the best, and I'm so glad that he's back on the beat for the Blazers. It's a really, really good, good piece. So go check that out. Uh, another good article on The Athletic was written by Will Guillory after the team he covers, the Pelicans, absolutely dismantled the Nets. Yes. It was barely a contest. You had Zion returning, Ben Simmons returning. It was. It felt like a battle of like two titans that were coming back into the NBA, and one looked like a titan and one fouled out in 15 minutes. And Zion Williamson, man, he is back. Will wrote in his piece that it's it's amazing because he actually puts the shot chart in the article, but that his shot chart looks like one of the most accurate dart throwers that you could see with <laughs> just everything around the basket. Yeah. And not only was, I mean, Zion was amazing in this game, but there's a ton of room for improvement. I mean, he only shot 50% from the field. He was 11 to 22, all shots at the rim, only four free throws. He had 25, 9, and 3 with four steals, only two turnovers in his first game back. And he said he said that his mom was getting on his case after the game, saying that he didn't make enough shots around the rim. I mean, there's he played an amazing game, but there's a ton of room for improvement. You had him and Ingram and McCollum playing for the first time together, and it looked like they had been playing together for a long time. I mean, they are all scoring in the 20s. It was pretty seamless offensively. Defensively, they played good enough. And then you had role players just chipping in. You had Herb Jones starting with them, playing almost 30 minutes, played a great game. You had Trey Murphy coming off the bench, four of six from three. This is a dangerous Pelicans team. Brandon Ingram is going to get overshadowed all year. One, because it's easier to talk about CJ McCollum just because we know him and he's very popular in the media. Zion Williamson is obviously the face of this franchise, but Brandon Ingram with 28, 7 and 5. He will get compared to Kevin Durant just because they're both very tall, long arms, very skinny. But there were moments, especially with his mid range game, that you're like, okay, that kind of looks like KD in that game. And if he's your second best player and your third best player is CJ McCollum, who looks really good. He kind of struggled in preseason, but looked great in the season opener. And then you have an improving Zion Williamson. Like This is an unbelievable squad. They had 62 points in the paint in game one against the Nets. 62. And like I said, there's room for improvement there. Zion will have nights where he's shooting 70% because he's taking all shots at the rim. Just an just an amazing game. I mean, they led by as many as 26 in this game. The Nets never led. I'm so interested to see how this plays out for New Orleans because they they could be one of the top teams in the entire league in the next couple of weeks. I mean, they start, they go to Charlotte, they come home, they play against Utah, at home against Dallas, Phoenix. I mean, I'm very interested to see that Phoenix game in particular. Once we get like a few, everybody has a few games under their belt. That's on ESPN um, Friday, October 28th. That one is super interesting to me. Um, but this Pelicans team, man, I, I, I don't know that I want to go as far as like saying they could be a home court advantage in the West. But I, you did I it for the Bulls. I think it's certainly possible that they're there because this the talent 
is there. They have good players coming off the bench. They're well coached. They want to play for one another. And this like New Orleans franchise and city have have been wanting a team like this to latch on to for a long time. And I think they've finally got it. And and also you have the good vibes not only coming from them, but you can latch on to the bad vibes of the Lakers and say, hey, we got another pick coming. We could have like a really, really good player coming our way yeah. to New Orleans as well, uh, which is great. I mean, they drafted Dyson Daniels pretty high in the lottery. Like he didn't even hardly play or impact this team. He's a guy that will be developing kind of in the background for this squad. I mean, the best is yet to come for the Pelicans. And, and thankfully for NBA fans, the uh, national television schedule has finally lined up with the Pelicans being healthy. Mm-hmm. I mean, like j- mm-hmm. next week we're getting two nationally televised Pelicans games, the Dallas and the Phoenix game you mentioned, and they're going to yep. be on national TV a lot the rest of the season. And that's just great because it, like, it, it's been so long since we've gotten to watch Zion on national TV. And he mm-hmm. is that type of marquee star where it's just oh. the, the guy that you just have never seen before. And, mm-hmm. and you want to watch that and you want to collectively experience that as as an NBA as an NBA fan community. Yeah, and watching him on night one, there, there's always been concerns about his body and the amount of force that he uses with his body. Like he's he's starting to look more like, oh, okay. Like he's starting to look more sustainable. You know, he doesn't look as heavy. Um, as he has in the past, like he looks ready to dominate the NBA, and he, he's somebody that I just don't think everybody has been quite ready for. Mostly just because of the injuries, and we don't really know what to expect. But if he's healthy all season, I mean, he'll be one of the best players in the NBA. I mean, he absolutely will. So my second observation, the thing that jumped out to me, Andrew, spooky mm-hmm. season, jump scares. You got a favorite <laughs> uh, scary movie, Andrew? I don't like scary movies. I hate scary movies. You hate all scary movies. I I'm, I don't I don't enjoy them. I've not I don't know that I've ever enjoyed a scary movie. So I'm I'm not a scary movie guy. I'm the worst well, person to ask that. That's too. disappointing. You could. What's have just your favorite? Said, uh, does Final Destination the entire series count? <laughs> I don't know if those are. <laughs> it's scary. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Then those. <laughs> uh, okay. The thing that jumped out to me: the play of Detroit's rookies. Uh, yeah. Now, Andrew, I'm I'm no draft guru, okay? So unless there's a universal consensus that a guy is ready to immediately contribute in the NBA, like there was, for instance, for uh, Paulo Bencaro, I don't really know how to set my expectations for incoming rookies. Like unless every mm-hmm. single person is saying this guy's going to be able to play from day one, I don't know what to do. And so I tend to err on the side of caution. And as a result... I was probably a little lower on Detroit than most coming into the season because I look at the roster, I see two high-minute rookies, and I wonder how is this all going to just immediately work out in a season mm-hmm. when many people have considerable expectations for the Pistons taking the next step, whatever that next step is. Well, it's only one game, Andrew. Just it's only one, one game. game. But I was very impressed with both Jaden Ivey and Jalen Duren. With yeah. Ivey, you know, people told us, all, all the draft guys, the speed and explosiveness is going to immediately translate. And it did. He's absolutely terrifying in transition, coming off of cuts. We saw that in game one. His finishing, like the body control around the rim was impressive. His defensive activity, his passing, his shooting, it just felt like everything worked in game one. Yep. Like 
everything you could potentially hope to see from Jaden Ivey was there in game one, and you know that he can get significantly better. And similarly with Jalen Duran, he didn't play as many minutes, but similar to Ivy, absolutely terrifying when he's running down the lane. Like the, the mm-hmm. thing that immediately jumps off the screen is just how big this guy is, his frame. Yeah. He's 18 years old. But those two guys together just bring a certain type of energy and juice to this Pistons roster that it just did not have previously. Yeah. yeah. This team is just so much more electric to watch than they mm-hmm. were last year. And listen, they were playing the Magic, who they they were my uh, surprise team pick, of course. Mm-hmm. You know, the Magic are playing without Markel Fultz right now, and you really saw that in certain parts of this game. Yeah, a um, lot of Caleb Houston. A lot of Caleb a, Houston in this one. A lot of Caleb Houston. A lot of yeah. giant lineups. Like the biggest yeah. lineups I've ever seen with Mo Bamba and <laughs> like Bol Bol the, the and Mo- Wendell Carter Jr. and Franz. <laughs> I think Caleb Houston was the the shortest guy at six eight. There was yeah, some bizarre lineups. Yeah. Um, so you know, I don't want to get too excited because you know they're playing the Magic, which even though I have high hopes for the Magic, it's not like they're playing the Bucks game one. But right. I at least understand the thoughts of people who were really high on Detroit, who were factoring in the play of these two rookies because mm-hmm. it felt like game one was a proof of concept. And they both passed with flying colors immediately. So I'm yeah. I'm I'm more open. I'm more open to the upside of Detroit after game one. Yeah, and you and you look at the guys who played rotation minutes in this game, the only veterans were Bogdan Bogdanovich and Corey Joseph. Like the rest of this roster is Sidiq Bay, young player, Isaiah Stewart, young player, Cade Cunningham, Jaden Ivey. Kevin Knox is on this team somehow and played 13 minutes. Duran, as you mentioned, Killian Hayes played 16. Hamadou Diallo played 14. This is an extremely young team. And they, I mean, they were down early to the Magic and fought back and played really good defense and a good brand of basketball. And the the fire and ice that you have with Cade Cunningham and Jaden Ivey, I think is a real combination. And I think they're they're going to be a fun team. There's going to be bumps in the road because of all the guys that I mentioned. Like those guys aren't going to play well all together all season. Like that's just a natural part of basketball is that young players usually are not that successful. But you know they're going to be sprinkling in a Nerlens Noel in there eventually, and they're going to have some more veterans that are going to be able to play um, that are injured currently. But this Detroit team is is super interesting. So I think that's a great observation. And the, the league is in really good hands right now when you talk about that Orlando-Detroit game. Like, these are two of the worst teams in the league. And the amount of talent that's on both squads is pretty staggering, especially if you consider, like, the way Jalen Suggs played against Orlando or against Detroit. He was really good for them. Had 21 points, 8 of 11 from the field. Suggs looked impressive. And if Orlando can get a good season out of Jalen Suggs, and obviously Wendell Carter is a good player, and Franz Wagner's been getting a lot of buzz, and you have the number one pick in Paolo Bancaro, who was 27-9-5, for crying out loud, his first game. I mean, the league is in just such an amazing spot when you have two of the worst teams in the league that have talent up and down the rosters. Yeah, that uh, that did feel like a marquee game. I know that feels weird, but like that first day, I was yeah. so excited that that was the first game. Oh, there were yeah. just so Me many too. guys I wanted to watch. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, speaking of somebody I'm excited to watch, Mike Prada is coming on the podcast right here after this break. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service that you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. I'd like to welcome Mike Prada onto the podcast. He is an NBA writer. He wrote a book. He's also a colleague of mine at The Athletic. The book that's coming out, you can pre-order it now. It comes out on November 1st. It's called Spaced Out. How the NBA's three-point revolution changed everything you thought about basketball. Oh, he is showing it to us here on the Zoom recording. This is brilliant. Uh, Mike, how's it going, man? I'm good. How are you guys doing? We're great. Doing great. Doing great. We got basketball back. There's nothing better than Hell this yeah. time of year. Hell yeah. So good. <laughs> um, so before we get to your book... We've been talking about the first couple nights of the NBA and how our preseason perceptions of some of the teams have already been challenged based on things that have happened in game one, uh, maybe some things that we weren't expecting. Uh, are there one or two things that have jumped out to you that have interested you in week one? Isn't it funny how like we have these expectations and then we see the team play one time and it just anchors just our perception of the entire season? Like it's it is one game out of eighty two, but it's the first one or the second one. You know, actually, the thing that stands out to me is is not a specific team, but it actually does connect a little bit to the theme of the book or a part of the book. I don't, as you guys have seen, is what does it actually mean to like space the floor nowadays? Right hmm. now, I've been I've been thinking about this a lot with the Lakers, obviously, because they have made maybe one out of seven hundred and fifty five three pointers over the first two games. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's about right. Something like that. And yeah. yeah, so and obviously there there's a lot of talk about why don't you LeBron LeBron with shooters or lasers as LeBron said it yeah. on Tuesday. I think that was the word he used. But it, it applies also to just a lot of these other teams. It's like what is it and there's a part in the book about this, but like what does it actually mean? It's not enough to just have like a high three point shooting percentage anymore to be spacing the floor. And even the concept of spacing the floor nowadays, we've kind of understood what that means to spread out. It's not just to spread out, it's also kind of a dynamic sort of thing. I was also thinking about this watching Philly last night um, against Milwaukee and watching Philly in the opener. I mean, that's a team that has a lot of offensive talent, a yeah. lot of shooters, mm-hmm. right? And I don't think they're going to have problems scoring points. But what's interesting to me is just how much their spacing is stationary. Yep. It's very hardened S, yeah. you know, Rockets S, where, you know, they're they're standing far away or they're standing deep in the corner. And it, it's been interesting to watch how teams have navigated, especially now that everybody's bigger. Like, that's the other thing that's sort of happening is just off-ball defense has become so interesting and intricate. There's this game within the game that's hiding – in plain sight as you watch. And some of the teams that are doing really well to start the year are the teams that are actually, I think in New Orleans a lot too, like this where they just blasted Brooklyn, a team that I guess they didn't have their two best shooters. There's like almost an art now to playing perimeter defense as a team where 
you're closing certain spaces. You don't want to get to, I think the nail is like a big spot on the floor where nobody wants to get to. You're covering this ground and then you're flying out to shooters. And now it's a lot about like with the Lakers in particular, they don't, they're not just bad shooters. They're slow shooters. Like Patrick Beverly's release is slow. This guy's not getting open fast enough. So they're not getting their shots off. And so spacing has got to be this dynamic thing. And it just seems like the teams that really understand that who have built their rosters around kind of taking away that space or being able to fly out or on defense and being able to shoot quickly and cut incisively. You look at the shot that Wes Matthews hit last night to beat the, the, the Sixers. That was an incisive cut at the right time. That's where these games are being won now. And it's just interesting to watch how teams are kind of coming to terms with that and how they're covering those spaces. Uh, That's, it's hard for me not to see that when I'm watching a lot of these games now. One through five decision-making is like another thing Mm -hmm. too. Like it's hard to mm-hmm. play in this league offensively if you can't make a decision. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, not just make a decision, but like kind of make a decision at the right time and in the right space. I mean, there's mm-hmm. a there's a lot of talk in the book about kind of vision and perception and how people I feel like are seeing these passes and these patterns. And there's just there's a whole game that's evolving within this and you have uh, do you guys remember a couple of years ago when like the Bucks had all those squares on the court? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Uh, actually, that was an Eric name story that you reported it that. It's like yep. you right. you got to stand here to spread out the floor. And for a while, there was a lot of talk that like they're kind of getting rid of cutting. Uh, like the game is becoming stationary if you do it that way. Like you've got to literally stand in this box. Mm-hmm. And like that's – but what's actually – the whole point of doing that was to say these are sort of like your hot spots, your traffic, your, your, uh, your landmarks. You're supposed to move between them. You're supposed to kind of, when the ball is here, you're there. And there's a sort of geometric shape that keeps moving around. And it only was when they, they redid the, they redrew the boxes and they put the dunker spot box and they put a wider that I think the players really understood that. Now just everywhere you see, nobody's really even spotting up anymore. There's just a lot of movement. Mm -hmm. And so then the flip side is teams that, are on defense are building their rosters around these giant wing players that can kind of cover those spaces at to it twice at once. Um, and I think this, this is the way the league is playing out early on. It's just really interesting to watch that from just a larger, whoever, every team, you know, and the teams that are playing well are doing that. Well, you look at Boston and then you look at a team like Philly who so far has not gotten the most out of their talent. I think that's a big factor is they don't cover those spaces well and they don't, move between those spaces as well as they should. So the the thesis of the book, and correct me if I'm wrong, and the book, of course, Spaced Out, now available for pre-order, uh, is that for mm-hmm. as much as we recognize and acknowledge that a three-point revolution has occurred over the last half decade or so, we still haven't yet grasped just how fundamentally it has changed the sport. Mm-hmm. In the book, you write that the sport of basketball has paradoxically become much easier for fans to consume while also being much harder to understand. You kind of got into this in, in your answer to the first question, but w- what are some of the other aspects of the modern game that you feel like we are still not fully appreciating and that your book is trying to illuminate? I think the fundamental answer is, imagine you took 10 players and you put them in a box this big, and then over the course of maybe five or 10 years, you doubled that box, but you didn't add more players to fill it. Mm-hmm. Right. That's basically what happened Yeah, to the sport. Mm-hmm. I mean, and so to me, when that happens, like you now have 
the reason the game is more, what I say it's more harder to understand is you're literally looking at a bigger surface. So you're using more parts of the, the court. So as a player, you're covering more parts of the court. You have to be responsible for more parts of the court. You have to think like the two most important landmarks that we need to kind of either be rushing to or rushing away from or whatever are to one foot away from the basket and 27 feet away from the basket. Mm -hmm. How do you possibly cover those two spots at once? And we've talked a lot. I think there's been a lot made of like kind of just people shooting more threes uh, and the efficiency that that's created. What I think there's been less talk about is if you're now asking players to cover twice as much space, that doesn't just change how they generate shots in terms of, you know, what plays are the way to run, how fast you want to get it into them. It also changes how players literally move between those spaces, right? What are the techniques of movement? What are the techniques of vision? What are the timing? What's the timing of all that? And so a good part of the book is uh, about just how it's changed player physiques, you know, where mm. to be a good shooter means you've got to shoot faster. So what does that mean? How do you dribble between those spaces? How as a defense do you kind of cover those two spots collectively? Uh, how do you, how do you do all those sorts of things and, and what kind of combinations and what movement patterns as a group do you, do you generate whether is it one guy crashing from this angle or that angle is the roller now always going to be the guy who's setting the screen is the driver the roller there're just a lot of these sorts of factors that i think we haven't really wrapped our heads around um so that's kind of what the genesis of the book was and you know it kind of goes in three parts you sort of talk i, I talk about how we kind of got here try to figure out some big questions like what does it mean to be a superstar now what does it mean to play uh, what is what I call the myth of positionalist basketball. I just, I hate that term. And we can talk mm -hmm. about that. Um, to like, why is a pick and roll such a big deal? How do you guard the pick and roll? And then all the way down to the player skills. So to me, it really just stems from that very fundamental concept of like, you have a, you have a playing surface, you've basically doubled it. And then when you consider also the size of the players in the surface area, you've done more than double it. So, why wouldn't everybody need to change dramatically how they think about the sport if that's what's happened? So that it really kind of, to me, we've thought about, we've just not thought about it in those terms. We thought about it more in terms of outcomes and really what we've done is we've altered the playing service. Hmm. So let's, let's rewind a little bit in the book. You write about the process of how the three point line became introduced to the okay. NBA in the mm -hmm. summer of 1979, the vote at the Board of Governors meeting ended up 15 in favor of implementing the three-point line and seven against. Uh, what were the circumstances at the time that led to 15 owners supporting this fundamental change to the game? Well, the the league's ratings were tanking a little bit. Uh, they Part of that was because of... Uh, drugs part of that was because of the lack of superstars uh there was no this pre-magic larry bird part of that was a parody but a big part of it really i think was that the game was just becoming just a physical wrestling match of mm -hmm. a game where these guys because the teams were built around kind of playing in such a low surface that you know the game got really slow the game got really physical um a lot of the like sort of more like kind of lean ink glider type players, the kind of athletes were in the ABA, you know? And so then at the end of the seventies, they come into the NBA. It's just this like kind of smashing together of 
two very different styles of basketball. And the ensuing finals weren't very good. So I think there was a recognition league-wide that they needed to kind of figure out a way to open up the game. And to be clear, the that has always been the goal of the game's founders. I mean, the lane used to be six feet by six feet. Mm-hmm. Then George Mekin came around, then they doubled it, then Will Chamberlain came around, then they added more space to it. So it's always kind of been the goal to not make it a wrestling match. But for various reasons we talk about in the position chapter, uh, that's where it was. So I think there was a recognition that something needed to change. The problem was, and the reason that it was such a contentious vote, is that I think there was still a lot of anti-ABA sentiment. The ABA had the three-point line. The NBA did not. And the NBA had just bought the ABA, and there was sort of this this undercurrent of, uh, this is, I think, Frank, what the old owner of the Warriors called it, car- cartoon basketball, or what did he say? Carnival basketball. That was the word I'm thinking of. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you had this sort of need to change something, combined with this incumbency bias and this anti-ABA sentiment. So you end up with a situation where like kind of the owners kind of reluctantly push this through. And by the way, it needed a two thirds vote and it only, it only got there by one. And then immediately after they do this vote, it's like all the guys who are established kind of names in the sport, Red Auerbach, Jack Ramsey, you know, all these players are like Dick Mata, John McLeod are like, this is bad. This sucks. (laughs) (laughs) So, so Jared, as they are introducing this, they're basically trying to temper the fears of these, these tastemakers be like, it's not going to be anarchy. So that's the anchoring effect that kind of you come into the league with. Um, And I just think part of it is too, is when you say a shot is worth one more point, and another shot that's something that's totally new to people i think people understood like if you spread the game out it'll make it easier for the big guy but once you kind of introduce this like well this shot's worth three points it totally changes what you're hardwired to do which is to jam the basket because all two point shots are the same so i think that that context to me is really important to understanding why it took a while we talked about anchoring effects before the show and how like your first impression anchors you with like kind of how the season happens i think that's what happened to the three-point line in a lot of ways well, that's, the anchoring effect is that because mm-hmm. actually i want to ask a question about that because one of the topics you get into early in the book and which i've always wondered about is why did the three-point revolution that we've seen over the last half decade take so long to happen mm-hmm. because you're talking yeah. about these opinions that were in you know the late 70s the early 80s but we're talking about it taking nearly 40 years for the power of the three-point line to be fully realized and it's not like Daryl Morey was the first person to realize that three is worth more than two so like once right. you get into the 80s or even the 90s what were still some of the factors that were delaying what was probably an inevitable three-point revolution yeah well I, I'd say two things about that one it does seem like it took a long time, but if you look at sort of some of human history's inventions, they all kind of seem obvious after the fact. Mm-hmm. You know, I think you, there's a there's a great book that I I cited, um, "Innovation and His Enemies," and you just sort of see that the whether it's incumbency, whether it's a lack of imagination, whether it's something that I didn't refer to in the book, but like this concept of the paradox of expertise which is the people who are experts are the worst at innovating because everything filters down into what they know. Hmm. Uh, But I think that's one factor. The other thing I would say is I think this is where the 2001 rule about illegal defense that was kind of a remove, which is talked about in the third chapter is really massive to kind of triggering this transformation. As long as the offense 
could stand to do stand where they wanted, but the defense couldn't. And just so some background for your readers, like it used to be that you could not um, play zone. You could not kind of dig down. You had to either double team or play man to man. And obviously there are some teams that kind of blurred the lines there, but just in general, that was the, the expectation. You could not do that. And in 2001, they make a rule change that says they add in defense at three seconds. They say you can play kind of zone. You you don't have to outright double team. You know, we were kind of getting there slowly, but that was a big rule change. Once that happened, what I think was key is that no longer was there this asymmetry that the offense could go where they wanted, but the defense couldn't, which was something that like kind of teams of the nineties really exploited, which is like kind of, you look at the floor alignments of those, of those games. They're just like, they're, they're like four guys. There's Charles Jones of the Rockets who shit like went zero for six for three from his career is like standing 30 feet from the hoop because that pulls away the center on the other team. And he cannot literally that center cannot stand below the free throw line. It just, it looks ridiculous <laughs> in hindsight. Um, but once you got to the point where like defenses could now defend five guys with five guys that started to necessitate the need to spread out, to give more room to kind of create a better ability to kind of move the ball. I talk about the Pistons a lot as this transition team where, you know, they played man to man, but they also loaded up to the ball so well. And it just made it hard to just kind of the best way you, the first way to sort of fix that is you had to kind of spread more guys out so that if you loaded up to the ball, you had to go further away to get back to them. And I think that combined with the Suns and, the revolution of the D'Antoni Suns and then the uh, 2005 hand-checking rules, that was the first trigger where now people were understanding that you had to realign the floor. And then after that, the next trigger, I think, was realizing that the pace part of the pace and space revolution, the three-point line could be a chaos engine. It wasn't just a place to get more points. You could leverage the threat of the three-point line to get closer to the basket. And that's something that the Suns and the Warriors really understood. And once kind of three-point line went from being a thing that uh, you could use to a, use to shoot threes to a thing that you could use to engineer chaos, I think that's when the three-point revolution really kick-started. So I think it, it took a couple of those. Those were the two factors, I think, that really took it from we have this line to like what we have today. So last question for you. Uh, spaced out mm-hmm. is about a fundamental change to the sport of basketball and the downstream effects of that change. In doing research for the book, I wondered if you gained any insight into the future of basketball. Like, where does this story go next? Because based it's a good question, right? Based on history, <laughs> it seems likely that we will look back in ten to fifteen years and think, "Wow, the game looks so much different than it did a decade ago." Because that just seems how it has been. Do you have any thoughts mm-hmm. about what those next evolutions of the game could be? Yeah, no, I, I'm sure this is a question that I'll get a lot. Um, I would say, one, it's a little – it's kind of funny that people would ask me after I talk about the paradox of expertise. I feel like I've just <laughs> sort of said, like, I'm going to be the worst at predicting these things, right? <laughs> um, but, no, I, I think what – you're starting to see, I think, some some interesting kind of new changes. One of the big ones that I think has already happened and I think will continue to happen is – this blurring of the line between what's a half court play and what's a full court play, what's a fast break. I I talk about it in chapter five. I talk about it again later. You're seeing some of this with like the possession game, right? Where teams are now crashing the offensive boards more. And, you know, what I think is also happening is that you're you're seeing 
because there's only so much room in the half court set before you go commit a backcourt violation. When guys get rebounds, you're almost like kind of running a version of a half court set over 94 feet. Mm -hmm. So I would say that the difference between offense and defense is continuing to be chipped away across the league where it's much more about a full court game. Obviously one team will always have the ball, but where you stand, how you align the floor, kind of how you kind of try to keep possessions alive or not, what you, how quickly you get it back up the floor, how you kind of, the way you align your offense plays into how you kind of align your defense. I think that is going to just continue to get blurred. And so I'm very curious to see how teams like Memphis, Toronto, uh, who else is like a New Orleans actually is a really interesting example of this. Is it almost like sometimes more interesting if you can like pin your other t- your opponents in by like kind of crashing hard on the rim? How do you balance that with kind of being able to cover the rest of the court versus it had been for so long that we wanted to spread you out more? Like what if like kind of there's this counter movement? I think of uh, – do you guys remember this maybe – 10 years ago where George Carl kind of used to put players out of bounds yeah, on the baseline. Yeah. I don't know if mm-hmm. this like rings a bell at all. Mm-hmm. You're, yeah. So you had this like kind of thing, maybe it was like in the 2012, 2011, right after they traded Carmelo Anthony, yep. he had this grand idea. What if we like just place guys like out of bounds on the baseline? <laughs> Did, Alex, I hear you scratching your, I see you scratching your chin. I'm just, there. I'm trying to remember that. Cause it sounds like something I would have loved. <laughs> But, yeah, <laughs> I wrote a piece about it way back in the day. But um, so if you actually watch the floor, like it, they had to put in a new rule to stop this mm-hmm. because it, it seems really weird, right? Like, why would you put a player out of bounds? That's stupid. You can't do anything from there. What George Carl would find is that the other team would actually like almost follow them out of bounds, <laughs> out of like kind of inertia, right? Yeah. So they'd end up just being underneath the hoop. So he would basically, it's kind of like how when you run like one four flat at the end of the the half where like you have everybody on the baseline while like one guy is at the top of the key so he has all this room to do stuff it's like a more extreme version of that so they would he would have these great drivers and they would attack the basket and by the time they were soaring up for their layups the other the rest of the other players that were going to shot block their shots were too far out of bounds to do anything about it <laughs> so they had to they had to create a rule that said you you can't do that anymore. I think it's called like an out of bounds violation. <laughs> like he was almost too good at it. Yeah. Uh, but that sort of theory inspired the Milwaukee Bucks dunker spot experiment a couple of years ago, where they would instead of playing four shooters around Giannis, often they would put a player like basically in the, on the baseline and the sort of with the short corner area. It was the same logic, which is. Instead of allowing a team to build a wall on Giannis before he builds up his his head of steam, let's make it so he's too they're too deep to do anything about hmm. it. And that was the logic. And I think that it, the concept is extended to teams like Toronto and Memphis, where they're almost with the way they crash the offensive glass, with the way they drive, they're almost trying to pin you in rather than spread you out. Um, and I think we might see more of that going forward, where you know. You think of because it is also a full court thing. You, know, you you sort of think about if you're out of bounds, you can't exactly break fast, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I think there are going to be more teams that maybe not. Um, 
there, you still need some shooters. You can't put all guys out of like kind of on the baseline, but I think you're going to see more teams that are going to try to reimagine to kind of bring this conversation full circle. Like what does spacing the court actually mean? It's not just kind of having three point shooters. It's also about like kind of maximizing the parts of the court that we want to get to. How do we get there more effectively? And defenses will have to counter with ways to kind of, there will be new hot spots on the floor. I think that teams are trying to get to and not get to. And I'm very curious to see how that plays out over the next 10 years. Spring is the best time to add new challenges to your training, just in time for summer and warmer days. I know I'm looking outside right now. Sun's out, birds are chirping. It's time to start getting outside. Uh, I know that I like to get outside and play basketball with my kids. And honestly, I need to get into a fitness routine in order to keep up with these guys. And Peloton is there for me. Peloton's varying class links were designed with your training plan in mind. Personalize your workout, whether you'd like to add a 10-minute core session at the end of your strength class, or take a 60-minute power zone ride to increase your endurance. Peloton classes are designed to help focus on your needs and goals. Peloton's classes were made to challenge you. There are a variety of classes like boot camps, boxing, full body strength, or marathon training, all created to grow your skills or push you to improve in what you're already excelling in. Peloton's program and instruction push you to be your best. Their expert coaches and nonstop vibes will push you to new levels of strength and endurance, keeping you on your toes while giving you the professional coaching you need. Peloton has everything you need to get you where you're going. Whether you prefer to run indoors, row or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. Get your head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Well, Mike, thank you so much for joining us and and answering our questions. Uh, Go pre-order the book, Spaced Out, How the NBA's Three-Point Revolution Changed Everything You Thought About Basketball, coming out November 1st. But Mike, it is now time to play... Andrew versus the Beat, our weekly trivia show. Were you aware of this, Mike? I was, and I have to say, I was a I was trivia champion, sports trivia champion at my oh. college. Whoa, Whoa. Andrew! And uh, Whoa, I've never played against a trivia champion before. <laughs> this is in wonderful. My be- I'm like re- a little worried. I'm like setting myself up to fail. But my uh, my my <laughs> best friend, my best man, my best man's speech at my wedding. I still am haunted by this. In the middle of his speech, he goes, "Who was the 16th pick in the 2000 NBA draft?" And I say Frederick Weiss, and I was off by one pick. It was a world piece, and I was like, how did I miss that? I'm I'm still, like, haunted by this, so be careful. Well, that's really interesting because I was already going to have Andrew at a disadvantage because the theme of this week's trivia questions are all about the three-pointer. And Andrew, uh, your opponent this week happened to just write an entire book about the three-pointer. So uh, this will be an interesting one. So how it works, I've come up with eight questions all about three-pointers. Mike, you're going to give me a number between one and eight. It'll correspond to a question. If you get it right, you'll get at least two points. If you get it wrong, Andrew, I have a chance to steal for one. We'll go back and forth until all the questions have been asked and answered. So you just have to start us off with a number between one and eight. Four. Question number four, the longest question. (laughs) There have been 16 players in NBA history to hit more than 10 three-pointers in a game, and we're going to name them all. So how this works, Mike, you're going to give me a name, then Andrew will give me a name. We'll go back and Mm. forth until one of you stumbles. So all they had, they only had to do it once. You have to hit more than 10 threes in a game. Okay. Steph Curry. Correct. Andrew. James Harden. James Harden. 
that is Oh my gosh. Is oh that incorrect? Oh my god. James Harden has never done it. <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> wow. So uh Mikey, start Sheesh. off with two points. Andrew, you're already behind oh, to the trivia this is champion. Gonna be, this is gonna be a massacre. <laughs> one. Question number one. Question number one. October twelfth. 1979, Andrew. The first night of games in the 1979-80 season and the first time the NBA had played with a three-point line. There were nine games played that night. How many total Mm -hmm. three-pointers were attempted that night across the NBA? Now, before you answer, you can choose to answer first and then Mike can go higher or lower or you can make Mike answer first and then you can go higher or lower. Oh, boy. I feel like Mike probably is like, I know the answer exact (laughs) right on. Um Total three. I'll attempts. say uh, eleven. Eleven is... three point attempts across all nine games. The first night that there was a three point line in the NBA. This is attempts, yeah. right? Not makes. Just attempts. Yes. So what do I do? Do I say lower or higher? How's yes. it work? Yes. Yes. Uh, lower. Lower than eleven. Mm-hmm. Would you believe the answer is thirty two? There were 30, attempted. Ooh, there were what? thirty-two threes attempted on October twelfth. Wow! But there was only one one made. So there's not, there wasn't one made. There were six made. Oh, okay. Maybe the Chris Ford one was in a preseason game. No, the Chris Ford one, he he is credited with making the first three-pointer, but it's based on when the shot actually went in because there's a New York Times article about another guy who thought that some, for years. Someone on the Hawks, was, right? Yeah, who thought the he, Hawks, was, right? He, he was going to hold that record forever. But then they like did the timing, and it turns out hmm. that it was actually oh, the and it wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. Okay, I was right. He was on the Hawks, right? I forget his name. Yeah, I forget his name. I didn't pay but attention. To had that. the right. Do I get? Do I get points for that? Or no? uh, you do not get points. Uh, <laughs> it is now a tie game. You do have control of the board, though. Let's go seven. Question number seven. February seventeenth, two thousand and one. This two-time All-Star point guard holds the record for longest three-pointer in NBA history when he hit a 89-foot shot against the Milwaukee Bucks. Oh I, oh, I know this one. Baron Davis. That is correct for two points. All right, Andrew, the board is yours. Uh, number two. Question number two. December 14th, 2021. Steph Curry broke Ray Allen's three-point record in Madison Square Garden with his 2,000th, 947th three. On the court, Steph took a picture with Ray Allen and Reggie Miller, who are now second and fourth all-time in three-pointers made. Who are the other two players in the top five all-time for three-pointers made? And you do get one point per correct answer. Oh, boy. Three-pointers made. So it is the guy in third and fifth. Is James? I don't want to guess. I feel like James Harden's on this list, but I don't want to guess him again because I don't remember if that's right. James Harden. That is correct for one point. Oh, I, I was hoping I was hoping you would uh, you would get gun shy on that one. Out of it. Uh, I, I felt very gun shy, but I felt confident and also just like, I, I, can I be wrong twice about James Harden and the three pointers? Holy smokes! Uh, um, any guesses for the other name? Was Vince Carter? Oh. I feel like he's high on this list. Vince Carter? He is high on this list, but he is not number five. So, Mike, you have a chance uh, to steal for one mm, point. That's too bad. I wish I could have just guessed James Harden. <laughs> is his total three-pointers made? Correct. Dale Ellis. 
Dale Ellis, that is incorrect. The correct okay. name was Kyle Corver, who you had mentioned yeah, earlier. Yeah, I, I should have mm. thought of that one. Okay, so the current score, four to three. A great battle. Back to Mike. Number six. Question number six. The record for most threes taken in a single game without a make is 12, a record that is held by three players. One is Justin Anderson, who you would have never guessed, I assume. The (laughs) other two did so while playing for their current teams, the Houston Rockets and the Milwaukee Bucks. Who are the other two players to take 12 three-pointers in a game without making one? They're currently on the Bucks and the Rockets. Is that what yes. you're telling me? Yes, and they did it on those teams. They did it on the, the Bucks or Rockets. Uh, okay. Hmm. Um, was it Eric Gordon? I don't remember. Um, I'll say Eric Gordon. That is correct. And the Bucks. It's either – I can't remember if it's Brooke Lopez or Giannis, if Giannis once took 12 threes in a game. Or it might be Wes Matthews, actually. No, it's Brooke Lopez. I'm going to say Brooke Lopez. That is correct, Mike, for both points. Wow. <laughs> now nice. Six to three. We have three questions remaining, Andrew. Number three. Question number three. April 8th, 1993. This player – became the first in NBA history to hit 10 three-pointers in a game. Playing for the Miami Heat at the time, this player would go on to play for seven NBA franchises, winning three straight championships at his final stop. Who is the player? Oh, my I, I gave you some clues, Andrew. Yeah, It happened in 1993. Did. He played for the Miami Heat at the time. He played for seven franchises. And he won three straight championships at his final stop. What year did he retire? I'm not telling. That wasn't part of the question. (laughs) You don't just get extra information if you ask for it. (laughs) Oh, shoot. Glenn Rice? Glenn Rice. That is incorrect. Mike, you have a chance to steal. For one Brian point. Shaw. Brian Shaw. That is correct. <laughs> All right, the score. Seven to three. What a high scoring game. And we still have two questions left. Mm. And Mike, you have control. <sighs> That's board. painful. Uh, number eight. Question number eight. I am going to name four NBA players who have each played at least 20,000 minutes in the league. You are going to tell me which player hit at least one three pointer in their career. So three of the guys never hit a three in their career. One guy mm-hmm. hit at least one. The names this is like awesome. a this is like a two truths and a lie version of the question. <laughs> yes, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, the names are. Tyson I guess it's three tru- three three truths and a lie. Three truths and a lie. Yes. The names are Tyson Chandler, Dikembe Mutombo, Zaza Pachulia, and DeAndre Jordan. Which of those players have Ooh, hit, that's a, that's an interesting one. hit at least one three? Oh, my God. That's a very interesting one. Have Wait, you're saying which has or has not? Have. Three of them. Oh, okay. This is a, okay. Uh, sorry, you said it's Zaza, DeAndre, Dikembe, and who is the other one? Uh, Tyson Chandler. Tyson Chandler. I believe Tyson Chandler has hit a three in his career. Mike, that is 
Incorrect. Andrew, you have a chance to steal. Holy smokes. Okay. We've narrowed it down to three names. Give me the names again. Uh, Zaza. Zaza Pachulio. And DeAndre Jordan. Oh man, this had to be like a heave, right? Wait, this, wait, this are you sure? Like... Wait, I don't. I feel like I remember Tyson Chandler hitting a three. I I will look it up as we speak. As Andrew is thinking, I'm on the okay. basketball reference page. Maybe it wasn't a preseason game. I feel like I have a memory of this. He is 0 for 11 from three. I thought he did. I thought he did once with uh with the Bulls. Anyway, go on. Sorry. Mm. Um, I'm checking. His I feel playoffs. like Deion. De- I feel like DeAndre Jordan is like the least likely for it. To be correct, okay. just because I can't imagine what it would look like for him to shoot a three. <laughs> okay, so I'm gonna go with him. so I'm gonna go with him, DeAndre Jordan. Andrew, that is correct. Yeah, it was you know, DeAndre now that, Jordan. Now that I now that I think about it, it was DeAndre Jordan. I was thinking of that hit a three, and I got the wrong guy. So can I have the points? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. This, I, I think I have like a vision of this. He was with the Clippers, right? I mean, that would be an uh, easy guess. Yeah, I suppose. It must have been. <laughs> Although, if he did it with the Knicks, that would be funnier. I think it. I think it was like at the end of a quarter. I mean, again, I'm like just guessing. Mm. It was like at the top of the key. I remember this being a thing. Maybe, maybe we'll. Uh, I can't, as you're describing it, I kind of remember it too. Maybe we'll clip this for Twitter, oh. Andrew, and you can overlay the the video of DeAndre Jordan hitting his three from YouTube. Ooh, okay, good idea. Wait, but do, um, do I? Yeah, but do I get? Put you saying that over the video, <laughs> right? So, do, so wouldn't I get the points then, according to Twitter? Uh, Mike, if you keep mentioned... asking for points, I'm going to take away points. <laughs> You'll get negative points. You are you have already won the game. The game is over. We just have to play it out. Okay, okay. so oh. you are up seven to four. But Andrew does get the last question. Now, if he gets it right, it would be seven to six, which is not winning, but uh, it's closer. And it would be one of our highest scoring (laughs) games of all time, Andrew. So the final question is this. In the last decade, this NBA franchise holds the record for most games with 10 or fewer three-point attempts. Who is the team? Oh, boy. They did it 24 times over the last decade. I don't feel like I'm going to get this right. Well, you're saying tw- um, sorry, 24 times in a game. They uh, no, shot no, no, less. Tw- 24 games where they took 10 or fewer threes. So, like Grizzlies, I don't know. Andrew, don't that know. is absolutely correct. It is was it the really? I, Grizzlies. I was gonna, I was gonna guess Grizzlies. I feel like that was like an obvious guess. A come from behind yeah. loss by Andrew <laughs> to make it a one point deficit, seven to six. Congratulations, Mike. The oh, Brian wow. shot. The Brian shot one. Won me the game. Oh man, that was a tough one. The Brian shot one. Yeah, that was the only reason oh, I won. Boy, oh boy, Mike. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Go pre-order. Spaced out. How the NBA's three-point revolution changed everything you thought about basketball. Uh, I've got a PDF copy of it. I'm not trying to brag, but I've got it right here, and it's uh, it's very good stuff. So please. Go check that out, pre-order it, and then you can hold it in your hands on November 1st. Mm -hmm. Mike, thanks so much for coming on, man. Thank you so much for having me and for the trivia, allowing me to indulge in my trivia dominance. (laughs) I feel like if I didn't win, I would have, like, had really, like, a tail between my legs. That would have been really bad, so I'm glad I eked it out. (laughs) All right, Andrew, for the first time in many months... It is time to once again spin 
the Wheel of Fandom. Now, if you are a new listener, we do this every week during the season. At the end of each episode, we spin a wheel with all the NBA team's names on it. It lands on a team, and then me and Andrew become fans of that team for the next week. We watch their games, we listen to the fan podcast, we read the blogs, and then we come back next week and we talk with uh, you know a beat writer or maybe a fan podcaster about the team. Now, uh, I have 29 teams on the wheel. The only team that I didn't put on here is the Pacers, because we just talked about the Pacers a couple weeks ago. Well, that's a Pacers talk. That's a, lot of, that's a lot of Pacers talk if we got them this next week. Uh, yeah, that'd be a lot of Pacers talk. <laughs> and so we'll, they'll be added back onto the wheel when, yep. once we get through all of these 29 teams. So, you know, it could be anyone, Andrew. This is very exciting. I'm, I'm a little nervous. Yeah. Okay, so here we go. The first Wheel of Phantom team for the 2022 2023 season. The wheel is currently spinning. It is going to be the Portland Trailblazers. <laughs> this is a Blazers podcast. Oh, wow. So Very this interesting. Is actually, oh. This is actually really good, Andrew, because it one, is. they play Friday night against the Suns. Yes. That's, that's an exciting game. Then, yes. we already mentioned the game that I already said I was going to watch, oh, so I'm already watching it. We did. Which is the game on Sunday against the Los Angeles Lakers. Yep. Then, uh, I'm trying to bring up the rest of their schedule, and I'm hoping it's going to be really exciting, too. Then, <laughs> Those two are exciting enough. We're going to get to <laughs> oh learn a gosh. lot about Then they play Whoa. Denver on Monday, yep. NBA TV. Then they play Miami Miami. On we're going to know. great games. Hey, we're, we're going to know, know if they're for lot. real. We're going to know if they're the for real. What's this small, is this small ball lineup sneaking up and doing damage? I don't know. We'll have to see. This is great. It's a great pick by the wheel. That's awesome. Thank you, Wheel of Fandom, for such a great team in the first week of the season. Uh, something else that's great is leaving five-star reviews. If you go leave a five-star review, we will read it on the podcast. We have three to read this week. This one comes from a Wizards Trash Talker says the surprise team of the season segment is back and i am pumped big thank you to the odds makers for doubting the wizards and giving them an over under of 35 and a half and just barely making us eligible for alex's consideration and guess what alex you might be right that 46 wins is too high to honestly predict but you doubted the Wiz last year and we showed you for the first quarter <laughs> Of last year, at least. Keep on doubting. Watch us be the Bulls of last season. A first-round playoff exit is totally in the cards for the Wizards. Love the show. Keep them coming. Thank you so much for that review. This next one comes from Bunyan Boy. Five stars. Saturday Slam and Jam is one of the best NBA podcasts going. The show has an awesome mix of basketball analysis, nerdy stats, humor, and entertaining trivia. Andrew and Alex turned me into an OKC believer, and I can't wait to see the Thunder face off against my Toronto Raptors later this season for my first live NBA game. This comes from Miles in Nova Scotia, Canada. Thank you so much for that review, Miles. And then our third comes from Andy underscore Weaves. Saturday Slam and Jam with Alex and Andrew. I'm loving it. Although I usually listen on Sunday morning on my way to the gym because of the time difference here in Scotland. I got back into the NBA during the bubble when the lockdown 
uh, meant my soccer team stopped for a full season. I fell in love with the NBA back in the 90s watching Shaq on Channel 4 in the UK when I was a wee boy. This podcast has helped me learn about the sport and fall in love again. It's the best weekly review on all things NBA. The quizzes are even are great, even though I barely understand a question, let alone get an answer. The hosts are down-to-earth, funny, and informative. Keep up the good work from your biggest Scottish fan. Thank you, Andy. Wow. All the way from Scotland. Thank you so much for that. Hope you guys enjoy the weekend and enjoy the basketball. And we will talk to you guys again next Saturday. The U.S. hit rock bottom in Cuba in 2017. Can't even talk about it. Still, it's tough to, to speak about. We failed. Simple. It was, a, it was a very dark time in, in U.S. soccer's history, you know, not making the World Cup. That disaster, in some ways, was a blessing in disguise. With so many younger players coming in, everybody was extremely hungry. Competition started. The U.S. men's national team went through a dramatic evolution. Was at a point where I think, okay, I'm going to lose these guys here. They're going to stop believing in what we're doing. They're still forming. They're not fully realized players yet. I remember after that El Salvador game, just thinking to myself, man, like, this is going to be a grind. They're talented. There's a lot of hype around them. But are they really ready to take that next step? Everyone has something to prove. we got a lot of players who probably have that mentality. And now this team will head to the World Cup in Qatar with massive expectations around it. If we can get our group to play without fear, you know, we'll be, we'll be dangerous. We have one mission is to go to the World Cup and to win. I'm Paul Tenorio. And I'm Sam Stayschool. We are excited to bring you a special podcast series on the Athletic Soccer Show feed. From Cuba to Qatar, remaking the U.S. men's national team. The series details how the team was rebuilt, from the catastrophe of not qualifying for the 2018 World Cup to now sending a talented, young roster to Qatar. You'll hear from the biggest names in U.S. soccer, from head coach Greg Berhalter to former greats like Demarcus Beasley and Clint Dempsey and current players like Tyler Adams, Weston McKenney, and Gio Reyna. The entire series will be out on November 1st on the Athletic Soccer Show podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts.